Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, July 16th, uh, 2023. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on uh, in this episode, uh, we'll be bringing up uh, our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the recently held African-Arab Trade Union Conference that took place in Algeria. Zambia is commemorating the 47th anniversary of the Tazara Railway, uh, which links the state of the Republic of Tan- links the state to the Republic of Tanzania. Botswana uh, has discussed methods to enhance its gross domestic product in support of African continental development. And there's been a sharp rise in consumer prices in the Republic of Angola. In the second hour, we looked at the ongoing strike involving the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild, along with the American Federation of Television and Radio Announcers, where 171,000 workers have walked off the sets. We then examined the visits uh, this week uh, of Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi uh, to Kenya, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. Uh, Finally, we hear an address uh, to uh, the people of South Africa uh, by President Cyril Ramaphosa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the East African state of Kenya with the Wenam Jazz Band. Let's listen in. Yeah. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, music from the East African state of Kenya, the Wenam Jazz Band. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, uh, July 16th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, right now, we want to move into our regular Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And these are some of the uh, headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. And uh, at the end of uh, this segment of our program, we'll give you information on how you can uh, log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals with a recent meeting in the North African state of Algeria, where unionists from Africa and Arab regions have reiterated the importance of union solidarity and collaboration to uphold workers' rights to fight xenophobia, hate crimes, racism, and other attacks against migrants. They said uh, union solidarity and collaboration will ensure fair recruitment practices for migrant workers, particularly dire situations uh, faced by women, uh, migrant workers, especially domestic workers, and migrants in an irregular situation. They affirmed uh, the urgency to contribute to reversing conditions that push people to migrate out of necessity rather than choice and expose them to human and labor rights violations. Alongside decent work gaps in origin countries, inequalities, and poverty, the union has highlighted the role of climate change and conflict as push factors and reiterated the importance of tripartite social dialogue to overcome these challenges. A joint communique by the International Trade Union Confederation, Africa, the ITUC Africa, and Arab Trade Union Confederation, ATUC, at the just-ended meeting in Algiers, Algeria, called for continuous campaigns to overcome adverse drivers of migration, including advocacy uh, for deepening and expanding democratic spaces and for universal social protection, as well as advocacy to end conflicts. In other news, uh, in the southern African state of Zambia, on Friday, yesterday, uh, they held a ceremony to commemorate the 47th anniversary of the commissioning of the Tanzania-Zambia Railway Authority, Tazara Railway, a binational railway linking Zambia and Tanzania. Held at the Tazara Railway Station Terminal in Capri, Mposhi, uh, in central Zambia, uh, the ceremony was attended by Chinese ambassador to Zambia, Du Xiaohu, uh, Zambia Minister of Transport and Logistics, Frank Tayili, as well as officials from Tazar, the railway firm. In his remarks, the Chinese ambassador said his government will shoulder the due responsibility of working together with Zambia and Tanzania on the revitalization of the railway line. He has since proposed the setting up of a tripartite working group whose responsibility will be to promote the reactivation of the railway line. According to him, it was the responsibility of the current generation to transform Tazar into a road to development, prosperity, and new modern high-quality development of the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI. While acknowledging that the railway line was built as an immortal monument of China-Zambia all-weather friendship and spirit 
of China-Africa friendly cooperation, the Chinese envoy noted that it should not just be a monument. He pointed out that there, uh, the railway line uh, needed to be more efficient and be integrated into Zambia's transportation system and be able to meet the potential transportation demand. The Zambian minister said the railway line needed to evolve, innovate, and adapt to the changing dynamics of the global transportation industry by remaining competitive, consumer-focused, and environmentally sustainable. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In Botswana, President Mukwete Masisi of Botswana has said that as a leading producer of diamonds uh, by value, it is imperative that Botswana should develop value chains for raw materials to allow for greater value addition. He made the remarks uh, on Wednesday uh, when opening the ongoing four-day U.S.-Africa Business Summit of 2023 in Habarone, the capital of Botswana. With a 0.2% of the population of Africa, quote, Botswana contributes about 1% of Africa's GDP, unquote, said Masisi, adding the country aims uh, to further increase the contribution to the continental gross domestic product, GDP. Masisi said Botswana needs more private sector involvement to drive value chain development in major industries ranging from mining, tourism, agriculture, and education. Botswana's Efforts alone, however, will be an exercise in futility if, quote, we are not fully integrated into the global economic system, unquote, he said. Meanwhile, he said the African Continental Free Trade Area, a free trade area encompassing most of the continent, once fully operational, will build and strengthen uh, regional integration as well as boost intra-Africa trade. The summit co-hosted by the Corporate Council on Africa and the United States and the government of Botswana gathered about 1,000 entrepreneurs, international investors, top government officials, and multilateral stakeholders. The event, which began on Tuesday, provided a rare chance for local companies to connect with high-level African government delegations, including heads of state and government, senior U.S. government officials, chief executive officers, and senior executives of American and African enterprises. And finally, in the southern African state of Angola, the National Consumer Price Index of Angola, a main gauge of inflation, rose 11.25% year-on-year in June and 1.41% on a monthly basis, according to a report released by the country's National Institute of Statistics on Wednesday. The IPCN report, which tracks prices, fluctuations of goods and services in Angola, indicated that the 1.41% monthly increase in June is the highest since April of 2022. Throughout the past year, the monthly IPCN variation rates have remained below 1%. Among the expenditure categories examined in the report, <clears throat> transportation experienced the largest price increase with a monthly rise of 2.71%. Other significant increases were observed in healthcare, clothing and footwear, and food and non-alcoholic beverages, which saw respective increases of 2.08%, 1.53%, and 1.4%, respectively. And with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. 
In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and uh, that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, July 16th, uh, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Don't you abuse it I gave you tender love and care Oh baby Now don't you misuse it Girl, and if you got somebody else If you got somebody else on your mind I want you to please 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 baby ah, let me down But if you got any appreciation for me, you got a sad, sad way of showing it. Oh, yeah.
uh, the unions, uh, writers, actors, and announcers uh, in a major struggle against the uh, studio executives and owners. Uh, this is a um, audio of a press uh, conference that was held uh, by uh, the SAG uh, and of course the Screen Actors Guild and of course um, the president uh, speaks here in this press release uh, giving background uh, in regard to what led uh, to this strike uh, which uh, is involving 171,000 uh, workers within the entertainment industry. Let's listen in. We're not going to take this anymore. You people are crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Privately, they all say we're the center of the wheel. Everybody else tinkers around our artistry. But actions speak louder than words. And there was nothing there. It was insulting. So we came together in strength and solidarity and unity with the largest strike authorization vote in our union's history. And we made the hard decision that we tell you as we stand before you today, this is major, it's really serious, and it's going to impact every single person that is in labor. We are fortunate enough to be in a country right now that happens to be labor-friendly. And yet, we were facing opposition that was so labor-unfriendly, so tone-deaf to what we are saying. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect and to be honored for our contribution. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. That's our president. Um, questions? <laughs> uh, right here, Jeremy. So first of all, I think it's important for us to note that we respect every union's right to negotiate the contract that's right for their members. And there's nothing about our statements about not wanting to be held to pattern bargaining that in any way are, are intended to detract from the DGA's agreement or any other union's agreement. But SAG-AFTRA members are SAG-AFTRA members, and we went into that negotiation negotiating for our members. And the fact of the matter is that, yes, <clears throat> the AMPTP wants to insist that other unions adhere to things that they've negotiated, 
with, with other unions. And in the case of, for example, minimum increases, that's one example of where that's the case. The companies insisted that we agree to uh, limit the increases in minimum salaries for our members to uh, a pattern deal. And our negotiating committee uh, rejected that idea. Uh, I reject that idea. Our members need to receive increases that allow them to keep up with the pace of inflation. We believe that our members should not be working in 2023 for less money in real dollars than they made in 2020. And we certainly believe that our members should not be working at the end of the term of this contract in 2026 for less money than they made in real dollars in 2020. That's wrong, it's unfair, and it's unacceptable. And so uh, we didn't reach any agreement on that point. Hang on one second, please. I'd like the committee to come in and join uh, the negotiators, please. Committee members. So the, so the AMPTP just sent out a press release basically saying you guys are reiterating what they said yesterday and what Bob Iger said. You guys have chosen a path that will lead to financial hardship for countless thousands of people who depend on the industry. They're claiming they offered a, 60, a 76% increase in high budget SVOD foreign residuals, 58% increase in salaries for major roles. They, they say 11% 11 pay increase in year one, blah, blah, blah. They're, saying, they're claiming all these double-digit promises. And they're claiming they had a groundbreaking, I'm quoting them, AI proposal which protects performers' digital likeness. So what do you say to that? Well, let me, I mean, Fran may have some things she want to say to that, but let me, let me just take one of the items that you mentioned, and I'm not going to be able, not having seen their press release, I can't respond to every point of it, but this groundbreaking AI proposal that they gave us yesterday, and that groundbreaking AI proposal, they proposed that our background performers should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So if you think that's a groundbreaking proposal, I suggest you think again. Uh, Brad, Ago, uh, you guys put out a video that suggested that you were seeing progress in the in the talks, and you sounded uh, encouraged by what was happening. So, what turned? What was the pivot? Where did things go south? Well, you know, initially we started kind of on the outside. They weren't really ready to get to the core issues, and we were encouraged, quite frankly. But we didn't realize that that was where it ended, where it began and ended. And all the core ingredients, you know, we were basically either stonewalled or were so far apart that, the, you know, it was just, and, and in earnest, we gave them an extension of 12 days, which they absolutely wasted, making us feel like we've been duped, like maybe it was just to let studios promote their summer movies another 12 days. They stayed locked behind closed doors. They continued to cancel our meetings with them. We thought, you know, well, maybe they're really getting into it. But then what we ultimately received from them was what my mom would call a lek and a schmeck. <laughs> Now, 
was this in fact historic? Can you repeat that again? Yeah, the motion picture companies released a statement saying oh. that, uh, that, the, that the union walked away from a historic offer that you guys left the negotiating table. Was this in fact historic? What was historic about it is that we were really so marginalized, so dishonored, and so respect, disrespected that it was really egregious and disgusting. So that's what was historic, that at a moment when um, streaming and AI and digital is so prevalent in the industry, it has disemboweled the industry that we once knew when I did the nanny. And everybody was part of the gravy train. Now it's a walled-in vacuum. And not only is it unfair to everybody up and down the ladder, but the entity that employs us, it's really un-American. And it's unconscionable. What are you doing? We're not curing cancer here. It's a collective art form. Talk a little bit about how long you expect this to go on. Are we talking about weeks? Are we talking about months? And what would it take to get back to the table? That's up to them. We're open to talking to them tonight. But, uh, you know, it's, it's up to all of this is because of their behavior. It's up to them if they're willing to talk in a normal way that honors what we do. I mean, they are, they are well aware of what it takes to make a deal. <laughs> Fran and I personally spoke to several of the CEOs of these studios yesterday uh, and at length. They know what it will take to make a deal. They had the power in their hands to make a deal and avoid this strike. They chose not to do that. And last night, we told the AMPTP directly across the table, we're ready, willing, and able to return to the negotiating table whenever they're ready to do so. Their response to us was that they would be ready to talk whenever uh, we would act in a civilized manner, not be on strike. We told them that it's not uncivilized for people to go on strike. It's a moral right, it's a human right, and it's a legal right of our members to collectively bargain, to organize, and to go on strike if needed to defend their rights, and that we will be happy to approach them and negotiate with them whenever they're ready to do so. We were then later informed that it would probably be a while. So we will be here doing what we need to do to defend our members and to ensure we get a fair contract. And we encourage them to come back to the table um, because we're ready to talk whenever they are. It's obvious that AMPTP is uh, working in a coordinated effort with all the studios. Are you planning to do the same with uh, the other entertainment unions? We've been in constant contact with our sister unions. You know, the, the other unions in this industry have been incredibly supportive. We have been incredibly supportive of them. I'm sure it hasn't gone unnoticed that thousands of sag after members have been walking the WGA picket line since the beginning of May. But, you know, over the past years, we've been working together closely. The relationships between the industry, entertainment industry unions, have never been tighter, have never been closer, and uh, we absolutely um, are standing in solidarity with them, and they are standing in solidarity with us. 
Hi. Um, a lot of us are wondering how this is going to affect uh, promotion of past work, uh, not current movies to be promoted by actors, but things like participating in a panel at 90s Con, or if they are being recognized for their entire body of work. Can you clarify a little bit about the terms? Sure. We uh, will be issuing a strike notice and order to our members today that lay out exactly what members are prohibited from doing as part of this strike and what they can do. We've also communicated directly with members, agents, lawyers, and publicists so that they have this information as well. In general terms, any kind of promotion of any project that was made under the TV theatrical agreements, either current or past, will not be allowed, whether that's at a, a con, at a festival, at a panel, on social media, at a premiere, in any form. Uh, members who have uh, you know, other types of activities going on, like autograph signings or things that are not related to specific companies or projects that are produced under these agreements, they'll be able to continue doing that. But we encourage all members who have any doubt about the boundaries there to reach out to the union, read the guidance that we'll give them, and we can answer their questions uh, directly and individually. Hey, guys. What do you make of the reports that the AMP, uh, that the Academy's strategy was to bleed union members dry? I know there was in specific regards to the WGA, but what were your thoughts on that, that piece that came out? It was reported in the press that it was reported in the press just recently that there were some executives from the studios who stated that uh, you know that it was okay for writers to go homeless as a result of this strike, where that, like you said, that they want to bleed the people dry. Uh, I mean, I think Fran might have some a words to say about evil. that. Necessary evil. Necessary evil. That's right. Can you believe that? I mean, I mean, we had a whiteboard with quotes just so the room would remember some of the things that were said. But you know what? Eventually, the people break down the gates of Versailles, and then it's over. Well, we're at that moment right now. Hi, Ted Chen, KMBC. Uh, as you know, this is going to have a significant impact on the L.A. economy, uh, perhaps costing it as much as $30 million a day. What would you want to say to the businesses, to the people who are going to be losing their living because of Hollywood, who are going to be suffering alongside with you? Well, uh, believe me, our heart bleeds that we had to make this decision. But we can't not get what these members deserve because it's only going to get worse. This is where we drew the line in the sand. And it's a terrible thing to have to do. But we were forced into it. And let's not, let's not forget, actors are working people, too, alongside everyone else in this economy. And every working person should feel empowered to stand up for themselves. And when an employer, especially these big multinational corporations, wants to take advantage of you, wants to use their power to squash you under their heel, it is your right and your obligation to stand up to them. And I have a very strong feeling that those other people, whether they're parts of unions yet or not, will see what our members are doing and will understand why we had to do it. And Fran and Duncan, I have a quick question, Leslie, with the Associated Press. Um, how do you anticipate that this will affect Emmy's campaigning um, amongst actors since nominations were just announced yesterday? The, uh, the, our, our strike rules will not allow any form of promotion for television series, uh, streaming series that have been produced under these contracts. My expectation is uh, any actor participation in Emmy campaigning to a close. 
Hi, um, Charlie Trepani with USA Today. Um, you mentioned uh, some of the issues um, that went into this decision to go on a strike um, involving salary and generative AI. Was there one particular overriding issue that proved to be the biggest deal breaker for the union? I think there are several really important issues. Uh, Fran and I talked to the CEOs about those issues yesterday, and we've mentioned a couple of them. AI, of course, is really important. But in addition to that, the basic respect reflected in minimums that keep you at least so that you're not earning less money today than you were earning years ago, that's another example. And also, as Fran has talked about, the fact that this business model has been changed, but the companies want to just keep our members locked in a contract that, that doesn't reflect that change. We have a proposal regarding the sharing of revenue from streaming services that uh, has been on the table since day one of negotiations. The companies have refused to engage on that proposal and give it any meaningful discussion, much less agree to it. And uh, we discussed that issue with the CEOs yesterday as well. Duncan, in the name of the Spanish language broadcasters that we are here at this press conference, I would like to ask you in Spanish, ¿qué provocó el rompimiento de estas negociaciones y de qué manera han sido tratados por los representantes de los productores y los estudios cinematográficos? Pues pienso que, pienso que el problema en estas negociaciones es la realidad que los representantes de los productores no tienen respeto uh, por los actores y actrices uh, que están trabajando bajo sus contratos y quienes uh, trabajo es lo que hace posible uh, esta industria. Y todos de nuestros miembros, los miembros de habla inglesa y de habla hispana, son completamente unidos en uh, luchar por sus derechos contra estos em empleadores y uh, todos nosotros vamos a uh, hacer lo que es necesario a asegurar que nuestros miembros de habla hispana y de habla inglesa que están trabajando bajo estos contratos tienen contratos con respeto y con salarios justos y términos uh, apropiados. También la niñera says no más. <laughs> <laughs> very much. Hi, Jonathan Handel writing for Puck. Um, you know, Fran and Duncan, you both cast this as, uh, I wanted to step back, uh, as existential. And that makes the stakes very high. And of course, the companies claim it's existential for them in terms of the challenges that the business is facing economically in, in theatrical, in linear television, the amount of money needed to spend to compete with Netflix in streaming. How do you, how do you win a victory uh, in a situation where there is just so much head-to-head, -head, so much fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and so much at stake. I just say that I have zero doubt that these companies could have agreed to every single item in our proposal package without a problem whatsoever in their bottom line. They could do that. They choose not to do that. Uh, we told them, we told the CEOs yesterday and we've told the AMPTP across the table as it relates to our streaming revenue share proposal that we would be flexible on the terms of that. The issue is that there has to be a change in the structure. It's like what Fran said, we can't continue working off of a contract that was designed for a different business model. Despite that indication of flexibility, unwillingness to move in our direction or even substantively discuss the proposals. There is no, this strike could have been avoided 100% by these companies simply being reasonable and nothing about this contract would damage those companies 
at all. This is a matter of respect for SAG-AFTRA members, for the work they contribute, and it just, it just isn't there. Fran, do you want to add to that? Uh, do I? Well, do you want to add that? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I said to their faces that, you know, you're sitting there trying to squeeze us out of our livelihood. You're systematically figuring out ways to carve us out of what is due us. And you're sitting on the wrong side of history. Shame on you. That's what I have to say. Thank you. Uh, Alison Petrowski, Channel 9 Australia. Fran, you mentioned that the eyes of the world are watching at the moment. What is your message to actors and other members of the entertainment industry operating uh, in different parts of the world, uh, but operating in different parts of the world, but fighting the same battles that you are here? Well, I, you know, we all have to stand together on this because it's like a malignancy that's spreading and we're already in stage four. And if it doesn't get attended to immediately and swiftly with precision, it's going to destroy not only each of us, but the industry at large. I'll just add, you know, SAG-AFTRA has members all around the world, and we also have extremely close relationships with our sibling actor unions all around the world as well. And there have been plenty of times in the past when SAG-AFTRA members have gone to bat to fight for our fellow members around the world, whether it be in New Zealand uh, with respect to the Hobbit situation, whether it be in South Africa helping our colleagues there achieve copyright protections in their domestic law that they didn't have before. We've stood by and we do stand by them and we know that they stand by us. We've spoken to them and we know that we have solidarity from actors all around the world because they know this is a just fight. This is the same fight that they have. We're all in it together and we are going to win it. Hi, Brooks from the New York Times. Um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, optics of CEOs at Cannes and Sun Valley while holding the line, uh, you know, we can't, they can't afford uh, to, to meet your proposals. The companies push back by sending photo of you in Italy and, and you know, the selfie with Kim Kardashian. Can you... That wasn't a selfie. Excuse me, I just want to set the record straight Fran, on that. Before you do, can oh. I just say something? Can I, before, Fran answers that, before Fran answers that, I want to say it is outrageous that they would do that. You know, what Fran was doing was Fran was working, which is what our members do. And for these employers to cynically try to turn our members against Fran because she's doing a job that she was under contract to do, while, by the way, she was zooming into our negotiations after work hours, working 18 hours or more a day, it is outrageous, it is wrong, it's despicable, and they should be ashamed of it. But I'm sorry, Fran, if you want to say more about it. <laughs> No, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a brand ambassador for a fashion company, and so is Kim. I had only met Kim seconds before that publicity picture was taken. It had nothing to do with being at a party or having fun. It was absolute work. I was in hair and makeup three hours a day, walking in heels on cobblestones, doing things like that, which is work, not fun. I'm sure Kim would have rather have been at her home in Malibu with her children too, but we work. That's what we do. And at 10.30 at night, 
I would leave the event, I would go to my hotel room, and I'd call into the Zoom. And when I couldn't get through to them because I was on a plane, I was texting with him constantly throughout the plane ride. I worked around the clock in three different time zones because my parents live in Florida, though I keep asking them to move here. (laughs) And I manage their well-being as well. So, you know, I think that all of the people standing behind me stand behind me. Duncan, quick follow-up on, you said there was a proposal regarding streaming that was sent to the AMPTP that they did not engage with. Uh, I was wanting to just talk a little bit more about what some of the terms were, particularly involving viewership data, because I know that was an issue that actors really raised about tying viewership data to residuals. Sure. I mean, I I hesitate to get too much into the weeds, but the concept of this proposal, which was actually inspired by Fran, was that we uh, we would receive a percentage of streaming subscription revenue and that streaming subscription revenue would be divided up um, by project based on the project's contribution to the success of that streaming service. Now, as I'm sure many of you who follow the industry know, the streamers are famous for not sharing information, being non-transparent, and since we knew that they wouldn't want to share any kind of viewership success data, we went and found another source for that data from a particular company in the industry, an analytics company. And then instead of engaging with the proposal, discussing it with us, making any counterproposal, trying to figure out if there was a way to get to agreement, what they did is launch a, uh, you know, a, uh, an attack on that company, trying to claim that that company doesn't have you know, good quality or whatever else. Again, not legitimate at all. This was their distraction tactic to try to avoid engaging on a totally legitimate proposal. And from day one to day 35 of these negotiations, we never got any substantive response to that proposal, um, and it's just part of the larger story of the companies refusing to engage with legitimate proposals and refusing to do what it takes to try and make a deal, and, and that's the reality. Thank you. Right here. Uh, hello. Alex Golden, uh, NHK Japan Broadcasting. Uh, if I have it right, this is the first uh, SAG after strike in decades since the 1960 or 1986 you count the 14 hours. Uh, My question is, do you remember what the issues in those previous strikes were, and do they relate to today at all? So, first of all, let me just say, this is the first SAG-AFTRA strike in this contract uh, in over 40 years. Um, It is true we have had other strikes since that time in other contracts, but, you know, this is not a strike-happy union. This is a union that views strikes as a last resort, but we're not afraid to do them when that's what it takes to make sure our members receive a fair contract. You know, our strike in 1960 is the reason that our members have a health plan. It's the reason that our members have a pension plan, and it's the reason why our members get residuals. Uh, you know, and, and successive strikes since then have been the way that we have achieved key proposals that have been necessary to keep our members, uh, you know, having a professional life, having a career, and having the ability to do 
this job. I'm not an actor, but I know because I spend all my time around actors, it is a hard job. Anyone who doesn't know that, it is a job that requires you to have incredible resilience, that requires you to spend most of your time looking for work as opposed to doing work. It is a job that it makes it hard to get basics in life, like health insurance, like a, any kind of retirement. That's what this union provides. And I highly doubt there are any members of this union today who would say it wasn't worth it to go on strike in 1960 for as long as it took to achieve our health plan and our residuals. Well, this is the same kind of strike. This is the kind of strike that makes sure that our members' livelihoods are not taken away by artificial intelligence. This is the kind of strike that makes sure as this industry changes its business model, our members are not left behind. This is the kind of strike that says our members are not going to take less money six years later because of inflation that the companies refuse to account for and a host of other things. And it's the kind of strike that is unfortunate. It's sad that we're at this point, but it's 100% necessary, and it's 100% deserved by the actions of these companies. Hi, so let's finish it up with what is your message to the fans and consumers who aren't interested in the nuance that we're discussing here today? They just want their favorite TV shows or they want to go to the movies. Well, what makes you think they're not interested in what's happening here? I think that they have an allegiance to all of us because they, we bring joy to their lives. We bring entertainment to their lives. And during COVID, they turn to us for everything. So I don't think that your assumption that they don't really care about anything but being entertained over the summer is the bottom line when the people that give so much to them and enrich their lives in so many ways are saying we are being taken advantage of in a terrible way. And if we let this happen to us, Dollars for Donuts is going to happen to you and your family, your children, and everybody that you work with, too. That's how threatening this moment is in our nation's history. Welcome back, and that was a uh, press conference that was held yesterday, uh, led uh, by the president uh, of the Skill Actors, the Screen Actors Guild, and the American Federation of Radio Television Announcers, and also uh, the chief negotiator. Fran Drescher is the uh, president uh, of uh, the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Announcers. And the chief negotiator, uh, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, was also heard uh, answering questions uh, from the press uh, in that uh, recent uh, press conference that was held yesterday. 
And, uh, of course, uh, we have been covering uh, this important labor dispute uh, that is taking place in the United States uh, since its inception. And people who want to uh, find more information out uh, about uh, the writers and actors uh, strike uh, that is taking place, uh, all you have to do is go to the Pan-African Newswire. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, of course, uh, we are here every week uh, discussing uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Right now we want to shift uh, to a significant uh, state visit to the African continent uh, by the president of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, that took place uh, just this last past week. And, of course, uh, what has happened uh, is that uh, Africa and other uh, regions of the world are coming closer together. And, of course, this is causing uh, great consternation on the part of the United States, uh, the U.K., and uh, the European Union states. Let's listen to this report on uh, President Raisi's uh, visit to Kenya, Uganda, and Zimbabwe just this last past week. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi is on an African tour hoping to forge new alliances. As Iran's economy struggles under Western sanctions, what can Africa offer? And does Iran have any influence on the continent? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Mohammed Jamjoum. Some have called it a new beginning for relations between Iran and African nations. The Iranian president is visiting the continent to increase trade and economic ties with stops in Kenya, Uganda and Zimbabwe. It's a different approach for a country that for years has focused mostly within the Middle East and parts of Asia. But faced with U.S. sanctions, it appears Tehran is now increasingly looking elsewhere to diversify its economy. But are there other factors at play? We'll get to our guests in a moment, but first, this report from Katya Lopez-Hodayan. A warm welcome for Iran's president in Kenya's capital. It's a rare tour for Ibrahim Raisi, marking the first visit to Africa by an Iranian president in more than a decade. U.S. sanctions have isolated Tehran for years, and trade deals in Africa could lead to new business opportunities and new alliances. None of us are satisfied with the current volume of trade and the ongoing economic exchange between Iran and Kenya. Iran exported more than a billion dollars worth of goods to nations in Africa last year, from petrochemical products to food and medicine. Now it's aiming for more. Iran stepped up its diplomatic approach after the U.S. reimposed sanctions in 2018, when former President Donald Trump ditched a nuclear pact. Now, Iran's foreign policy appears to be shifting again. After restoring diplomatic ties with Saudi Arabia in March, it seems to be expanding its economic and political reach beyond the region. Some analysts say less tension with neighbors is leading to more attention abroad. 
Raisi visited Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua last month to increase trade and economic ties in Latin America. Despite imperial aggressions and sanctions imposed by the U.S., Venezuela is still standing. It's extending its hand to Iran to build a new world. Iran has described Africa as a continent of opportunities. Tehran is now hoping Raisi's visit will help lead to new prospects, both political and economic. Katia lopez Odoyan for Inside Story. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests in Nairobi. Ngala Chome, senior analyst at Sahan Research, a think tank focusing on security and development in the Horn of Africa. In Tehran, Ali Akbar Dareni, researcher at the Center for Strategic Studies. And in Miami, Eric Loeb, associate professor at Florida International University and a member of the Board of Trustees at the American Institute of Iranian Studies. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Ali, let me start with you today. Tehran has called this three-country tour of Africa a new beginning in relations with the continent. What kind of new relationship, new beginning, is President Raisi expecting, and, and what is he hoping to achieve with this trip? Um, President Raisi's visit uh, to Africa is in line with his administration's efforts to create new alliances with the non-Western world uh, in the current era of transition in international relations from a unipolar world to a multipolar system. Uh, it is also in line uh, with his look to the East policy of expanding economic and political relations uh, with the non-Western world. Uh, Iran is um, looking for closer relations with Africa to diversify its economy and defeat the sanctions. One way of defeating the sanctions is to increase Iran's international presence, improve cooperation with the non-Western world. Uh, this can help Iran uh, get out of isolation and defeat the sanctions. In this context, the, the Raisi administration looks at Africa as a continent of uh, opportunities that had been largely ignored by the previous Rouhani mm. administration. The previous Rouhani administration's top priority was to get the sanctions lifted, and uh, he he was his team was influenced by the neoliberalism school of thought that mm. sought to. Uh, solve Iran's problems uh, through negotiations with the West. But the JCPOA proved to be a disaster. Mm. Um, the, the sanctions were not lifted, the United, the United States. But the Raisi administration has adopted a new strategy mm. um, of, uh, of trying to thwart and nullify the sanctions while keeping the, uh, the path of diplomacy open in case there is a way to revive the JCPOA. Two major global Ali, developments. Have, Ali, I'm sorry, yes. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I do want to get back to you in a moment and ask you more about uh, the issue of the sanctions and the JCPOA. But first, I, I want to go to Eric because I saw him reacting to some of what you were saying. It looks like you wanted to jump in, Eric. But I also want to ask you, um, Iran's president visiting the continent to boost trade ties with Kenya, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. From your vantage point, how different is this approach for a country that has for years focused mostly on opportunities within the region? Well, we actually uh, do see some continuity here. 
Uh, we should note that President Raisi is visiting Kenya among the um, other among the three countries that he's visiting on his African tour. And even predating the revolution, Kenya was the second uh, and has been the second largest trade partner um, for, again, pre-revolutionary Iran and the Islamic Republic after South Africa. Uh, and this relationship really is formulated in uh, Kenyan exports primarily of tea to Iran in exchange for oil, carpets, and, and chemicals. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of continuity here in terms of the trade relationship between Iran and Kenya, as well as uh, even with Zimbabwe and Uganda, um, less with trade. They are uh, much smaller trade partners than Kenya, but Iran in the past has engaged in economic activities there, notably in both um, Zimbabwe and Uganda. It's uh, set up uh, automobile and tractor uh, factories to mm. um, boost its production there, um, as well as uh, worked with Uganda on its fisheries and other uh, sectors of, of agriculture, livestock, and industry. So there's actually a lot of continuity uh, on the economic side to, to mm -hmm. this visit. Uh, Ingala, uh, you heard Ali there talk about the fact that Iran's economy has for quite a while now been struggling under Western sanctions. I want to ask you, what can Africa offer Iran at this stage? Thank you. I mean, I agree with Ali that there's some continuity, but there, there are also some, some nuances and new context to be, to, be, to be paid attention to. One is Iran's own um, uh, sense of uh, isolation in mean, still facing U.S. sanctions, but also seeking to repair relations with African countries such as Egypt and Morocco, and closer home in the Horn of Africa, um, um, seeking to play a larger role in a region in a region where other sort of Gulf or Middle Eastern countries have recently come to play a large role in development projects, but also in areas such as security and defense uh, cooperation. In the discussion. The, uh, the president of Iran had today with the president of Kenya, a lot of it seemed to have centered on the traditional areas of, uh, of, of trade, investments, um, 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 you know, ICT, and less spoken about was the issue of, 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 of security, um, um, which has also seen other sort of Gulf countries, mid Middle Eastern countries such as Qatar, uh, uh, the UAE much more recently coming to play a role uh, in, 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 in the own of Africa, Kenya being one of the frontline states um, in, in Somalia's uh, uh, war against Al-Shabaab, um, um, it would have been um, um, you know, very interesting if that particular issue was not discussed uh, uh, during today's meeting. Um, uh, we, really, we really suspect that this was also part of the conversation, even though mm -hmm. it was in public. Ali, you were speaking before about uh, the impact that the Western sanctions were having on Iran. You were also talking about the fact that uh, former U.S. President Donald Trump pulled out of the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. And I want to I zoom in a little bit more on that and ask you more specifically about you know, the fact that Iran has really stepped up diplomatic outreach in the past uh, several months. Um, how much of that does, does it speak to um, how big of a problem the sanctions uh, have been, and how much concern there was about the fact that the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear deal? Sanctions have been hurting Iran for a long time, but the Raiz administration's top priority is to defeat the sanctions. And, uh, and one way of that is improving relations with the non-Western world. His tour of Africa 
represents a major strategic shift in Iran's foreign policy. And this shift has been uh, caused by two key uh, global developments. One was the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA and the reimposition of sanctions. The other is a um, shift in world power. There has been a major sh uh, shift in the global balance of power. The unipolar system has gone away, and the United States uh, can no longer dictate its policies on the entire planet anymore. So this creates more room for uh, developing states uh, and more room to breathe and more options. And uh, President Raisi's tour of Africa is a major change because Iran, uh, at the same time, has adopted a new strategic direction to uh, to be um, uh, to complement uh, the uh, the African economy to improve business for the benefit of the two sides and at the same time show to the international community that Iran has uh, other alternatives even mm. if the sanctions are not lifted. Uh, Eric, um, you heard Ali there talking uh, about the fact that what. President Raisi is doing now is, is quite a major break with what former administrations have done when it comes to uh, foreign policy. And, and I want to ask you, you know, from your vantage point, how does what President Raisi is doing now uh, compare or contrast to what former President Hassan Rouhani did when it came to foreign policy? Well, I would agree that it's a major contrast. Um, I had published an article with a colleague at the University of Tehran where we detailed uh, President Rouhani, as was said earlier, disengagement from Africa and focus on particularly leading up to the negotiations for the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, really focused on the West and on trying to alleviate sanctions through that process. Um, and so there was a disengagement and that really also culminated with disengagement on the African side as well where Arab Gulf states, namely Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, went on a diplomatic offensive, offered military and economic assistance, particularly to the states in the Horn of Africa, which is a very strategic location on the Red Sea during the Yemeni Civil War, and convinced these countries to cut ties with Iran in 2016. So this is an important shift for the Raisi administration, for Iran, in terms of trying to build back these relationships in the Horn of Africa and the wider continent. Ingala, um, let me ask you, how much influence does Tehran have on the continent at this particular moment? One, one often missed area, um, I feel, when it comes to relations between uh, Tehran and, and African countries, also in Kenya, where, uh, where, where I am, it's usually that is the, sort of the cultural sphere. Um, um, we all know that, you know, so Islam that is practiced in, in Africa is mostly uh, uh, Sunni, and in, in East Africa, mostly Sunni of, of the Shafi tradition. But in much more recent years, especially since the, the, the 1980s, um, there has been an increase in, uh, in sort of Shia, Shia, Shia uh, uh, is, 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 is Islamic uh, uh, schools uh, of thought um, that, that have been sort of sponsored by charities uh, or Muslim charities are coming, coming from, 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 from Islam. There is not quite a figure I could put, but there has been a visible increase in, 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 in Shia mosques and madrasas, for example, in Kenya over the years. Um, um, one area where one may argue Iran has not been playing a larger role 
um, is in um, the, the creation of availability of employment opportunities, where many young Africans, uh, you know, Kenya, Uganda, uh, but also, but also further afield in Western Africa, have found opportunities of work in mm. Gulf states, in Qatar, in in, uh, in, the, in the UAE, and in Saudi Arabia. But Iran seems to miss, uh, uh, you know, the, the name of Iran seems it seems to, to, to miss in this in this growing. Uh, um, economic relationship between between Africa and the Middle East, mm. and I think maybe this could also be one area um, um, uh, that could be that could form part of the discussions uh, uh, that Raiz is going to have with the number of African presidents that he's going to meet in this recent tour. Ali, it looked to me like you were reacting to some of what Ngala was saying there. Did you want to jump in? Uh, well. Um, uh, I disagree with, with uh, just part of what uh, he said. Uh, under the uh, Reis administration, Iran's new strategic direction is uh, largely aimed at economic and strategic cooperation with, uh, with African states. Um, while Iran is an Islamic republic, I, now I don't see ideology playing a, a much big role uh, in this now. The priority is economic, technological, and trade uh, cooperation with African states. Uh, Iran is exporting just $1.2 billion to Africa. This demonstrates the depth of uh, uh, Iran neglecting this continent of opportunities. Iran's foreign trade had been uh, taken hostage by the JCPOA, and the previous Rouhani administration uh, entirely neglected Africa. Now, under this new strategic direction, mm. Iran is reviving its policy of improving and boosting relations with Africa. And uh, the two sides have a lot to offer. Africa is a good market for Iran's knowledge-based uh, companies, uh, engineering services, uh, dam building projects, transportation, fishing and car production exports, agricultural exports. So there mm. is a lot Iran can offer and at the same time import part of its uh, needs from Africa. That has had, had been neglected. And under the Rouhani administration, under mm. the Raisi administration, Iran is trying to rectify that and at the same time defeat the sanctions. Eric, I can see you want to add to what some of what Ali was saying there, but I just want to go back to Ingala for a minute. Ingala, uh, yeah. Ali was responding to some of the points you made earlier, so I just wanted to see if you wanted to add to that. Yes, I would, and I do agree with Ali. Um, um, a lot of the a lot of the focus has been on building diplomatic relationships, and especially around trade and 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 also in investment. So it's very economic this language of, of this kind of. Uh, uh, newly sorted, uh, new, new, newly looked uh, for uh, partnerships. Um, it does make sense because, you know, Raisi was elected on a platform of fixing the economy um, um, at home. President William Ruto, where he's currently uh, in, um, uh, was also elected on a similar platform, but they've both faced inflation. Um, um, the currency of Kenya um, has, 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 um, has, has, has depleted in terms of value. Uh, similar to, to the Iranian currency. So it, it makes sense that both, both of them would come around these this e economic issues. But what I'm basically saying is that one area that's often overlooked 
and mm-hmm. where Iran may actually have a longer historical influence is 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 is, is in, in this cultural sphere. I think if you look at, at how the Chinese, for example, have have built their relationships across the continent, is that as they built their relationships through economic uh, partnerships, they also are channeling um, uh, you know sort of c- cultural items. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, case the learning of, of the Chinese language, setting up of Chinese schools, has also been part of that diplomacy. And I think mm. that for Iran to have a much more influential impact on the continent, um, um, that they could continue also emphasizing this more kind of softer cultural uh, uh, relationships as well. Mm. Uh, Eric, uh, you've been waiting patiently to uh, add your comments uh, to what's being said right now. So please go ahead. Yeah, no, I would certainly agree that economics and trade and commerce are certainly at the forefront of this initiative. And given that Africa really only represents 2 to 3% of Iran's global trade, there's a lot of potential in that relationship. On the flip side, there's also um, the geopolitical component of this, where uh, these countries can be uh, non-permanent members on the UN Security Council, and, and of course they sit in the UN General Assembly, on the IAEA Board of Governors, and they can potentially influence votes for Iran. Um, not to mention the fact that both uh, Zimbabwe and Uganda have uranium deposits, and so there's um, some value there in terms of uh, nuclear enrichment. Uh, in terms of the cultural ideological realm, I would say that Iran is going to be pushing on two levers. Um, given that, again, this is a Christian and Sunni-majority continent, it will be really pushing on the, the anti-colonialism card, which it often does when it visits these countries, to try to galvanize elites and citizens during these visits. And then secondly, it will also seek to make inroads in, in the, the small Shia communities uh, of these countries, particularly in Kenya uh, and Uganda. Uh, Eric, I also want to ask you about um, particularly one of the countries that's come up a few times already in this discussion, and that's Saudi Arabia and the role that uh, the reestablishment of uh, diplomatic ties that Iran has now had with Saudi Arabia is playing in all of this. Uh, The fact that the diplomatic ties between both countries were restored in March, is that one of the reasons why we're now seeing Iran seeming to expand its economic and political reach uh, beyond just the immediate region? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that very point. Not only is there rapprochement or detente, let's say, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but there's also a ceasefire in the works in Yemen, which was one of the reasons why the the continent became so geopolitically or strategically important and tense between the competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So given these developments, it may actually give African countries geopolitical capital now to re-engage Iran and to feel that they don't necessarily have to choose sides between Iran and Arab Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, Ali, let let me ask you a version of the same question. The fact that diplomatic ties have been re-established between Iran and Saudi Arabia, how much is that playing into what's going now? How much has that allowed Iran to be able to go beyond its traditional foreign policy goals? A lot. Uh, The Raisi uh, administration's policy of look to the east is primarily designed to uh, boost Iran's overall deterrence capability against the West. And Africa is playing an important role. To to achieve that, Iran needs to uh, expand its international uh, presence, de-escalate tensions with regional states, and pave the way for 
for better relations uh, with the non-Western world, and, and and that is happening right now. You know, uh, the mediation by China, uh, Iran's improving relations with BRICS and and uh, Iran's membership in the Shanghai Cooperation Council all speak of Iran's new strategic direction, and the Reis administration uh, has been pursuing. Uh, the resistance discourse in its foreign policy. Uh, that means uh, trying to uh, defend Iran's national interests and giving, uh, uh, you know, concessions in return for concessions, and not providing concessions without obtaining concessions. Mm. Uh, at the same time, the, uh, the Raisi administration has been saying all along that the world is not limited to the West. Uh, this is a reference to the previous Rouhani administration's policy that its foreign policy was largely uh, you know, confined to negotiations with the West. And the Raisi mm -hmm. administration wants to create a balance in mm -hmm. Iran's relations with the outside world. And one way of doing that is to improve relations with Asian, Euro-Asian, mm -hmm. Latin American, and African states. And this is what we are witnessing right now. Mm. Uh, Ngala, I want to ask you more specifically about uh, Kenya. When it comes to Kenya's foreign policy, how is this visit being perceived um, by members of the government, by uh, members of the opposition, and, and by the citizens? Well, so Kenya's foreign policy has historically had a very strong economic um, impulse. Um, um, from the time of the Nanaline movement to, uh, post, to, to the post-1990 world um, as well. Um, and, and so therefore, a lot of what has happened today um, um, was, was, was widely expected, that a lot of the discussions would center around uh, opportunities for trade and investment. The Kenyan president has announced that there will be um, um, a model of a car that will, be, that, will, that will actually be manufactured in Kenya from Iran, uh, locally referred to as Kifaru. And so a lot of the discussions were you know, centered around economic trade relations, investment and, and information technology as well. Um, but like I had said uh, uh, earlier, is that um, um, Kenya is also one of the frontline states um, mm -hmm. um, on the on the ongoing war against Somalia's Al Shabaab, mm. and, and and in that front, um, other Middle Eastern countries have also come uh, to play a huge role. Uh, in a you know in 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 addition to to, to, the, to the traditional mm. uh, uh, Western countries playing a role in the region as well in that sphere. Mm. And in this case, I'm, I'm referring to the United Arab Emirates uh, um, and, and and Turkey, uh, and, and 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 therefore for me. Uh, not in, in my view, um, I think that Iran may be thinking as well to to to, to also play a role in 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 in, in mm. sort of you know security defense uh, 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 partnerships as well. Ingala, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we are starting to run out of time, and I just want to ask one final question to Eric. Eric, I saw you uh, uh, shaking your head there, uh, actually nodding your head to some of what Ingala was saying, uh, and I just want to ask you very quickly. We have about a minute and a half left. Um, this attempt by President Raisi to reset relations with African officials um, does it look to you like it will be successful? Well, I think uh, it could be successful, and uh, like I said earlier, I think one of the pathways could be this dialing down of, of Gulf tensions 
within the continent and giving some breathing room to these countries to re-engage Iran. And so I think there's some uh, flexibility and, and some potential to work with. At the same time, I wouldn't necessarily be overly optimistic in terms of what Africa could do for Iran and vice versa, given the limitations that both sides have. And I think for that reason, despite Raisi's stated eastward policy, we're seeing the Iranians, um, you know, in a more subtle level, re-engaging the United States mm-hmm. and, and working out an informal agreement to try to uh, bring sanctions relief in exchange mm-hmm. for releases and nuclear limitations. Mm. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Ngala Chome, Ali Akbar Dareni, and Eric Loeb. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. For me, Mohammed Jamjoum, and the entire team here, bye for now. Welcome back. Uh, that was a report uh, on the recent uh, state visits uh, by uh, Iranian President Raisi uh, to three uh, African states, uh, Kenya, Uganda, and Zimbabwe, uh, just this last past week. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, for today's uh, Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday, uh, July 16th, 2023. We'll be right back. Tell me that the sun belongs to you and should surround you. If when I turn to look, I see they snatch the sun from all around you.
of uh, Elaine Brown uh, from the album entitled Seize the Time uh, by the Black Panther Party. And uh, just this last past uh, weekend, uh, Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa, who is also president of the ruling uh, African National Congress Party, uh, delivered an engagement uh, with uh, the media that was broadcast live over the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, we're going to play excerpts uh, from uh, that uh, uh, interchange and engagement. Uh, let's listen to uh, this report on recent developments in the Republic of South Africa. Well, the ANC National Executive Committee meeting is still underway in Boxburg, east of Johannesburg. This as the country begins to get for the general elections that will be taking place next year. There's a briefing that's currently underway. Let's take you line there. With you, but also to reflect on the outcomes of the three-day National Executive Committee meeting that is uh, about to occur. Still in session, but uh, a big part of the work has been done. And uh, with that, Mr. President, I also want to say we are joined here. I was going to read out the number, but it will take up a lot of the time that uh, I am sure uh, fellow um, media colleagues are keen to get into a Q&A. This is not a press briefing, it's a conversation. So we're going to keep things light, we're going to keep things conversational, uh, but of course we also have to manage the time so that the President is excused at the right time to go into the National Ability Committee meeting. And I will try and facilitate as best as possible so that everyone has the right. And, and, and so that is that, having done so. For those that don't know me, my name is Masei Denimutiri. I am a member of the National Executive Committee of the ANC and is appointed national spokesperson. With that, let me hand over to the President for his introductory remarks. Okay, President. Well, thank you very much, Masei. It's uh, wonderful to see uh, such a galaxy of uh, uh, media people. Uh, didn't expect to see so many of you, but. It would be good to have a conversation with ourselves. And I think you said it was really a fireside type of conversation. We are currently wrapping up the meeting of the National Executive Committee. This doesn't work. We are currently wrapping up the meeting of the National Executive Committee. Okay. NEC, which has really been rich in terms of its content and substance, covering a whole range of issues that are important to the lives of South Africans. We obviously started off with a political overview, which is often, which is always given by the President. And in it I thought to cover the progress that we have made and are making in addressing the priorities that we set out uh, at the January 8th statement. The first priority, as you might recall, was the renewal of the African National Congress and its unity. And the second one was to address the issue of no shedding and uh, bringing load shedding to an end as soon as we possibly can. And the third was to address the issue of the economy 
and to get all social partners to work together on issues that are pertinent to the growth of our economy. And the fourth one was to attend to the issue of basic services that need to be delivered to the people of South Africa, right across the country, and in the course of doing so to address the local government uh, challenges. And the fifth was to address the issue of crime and corruption. And the sixth one was for a better Africa and a better world. And addressing all these issues reflected on the progress that is being made in renewing the ANC. We were all rather pleased with the progress that we are making, making sure that we do renew the ANC and unite the ANC and make the ANC more cohesive. We reflected on how, for instance, various structures of the ANC are beginning to work well, various committees, the NEC is uh, a united NEC and giving leadership uh, to the organization and the working committee also functions extremely well and people have taken their tasks very, very seriously on the National Working Committee and the NEC subcommittees are also meeting on a regular basis and producing really good work, work that has been presented to the NEC today <coughs> and it, it is very refreshing that we have NEC subcommittees that deal with policy measures but that go beyond that and also deal with implementation issues. And we also looked at the SGO, the real engine of the organization and we were very pleased to see that our SGO is coordinating the work of the ANC very effectively and seeking to modernize the African National Congress. And of course we reflected on our leagues, that the leagues are now all set to have their conferences with the Youth League having had its own after an eight-year lapse or period of not only uh, having a real functioning uh, Youth League. The Women's League is now going to follow and thereafter the Veterans League. And so, as far as the ANC is concerned, we are pleased. We also had the Integrity Commission uh, explaining how it is going to function to the NEC and we also dealt uh, in part with the terms of reference which will be finalized later. So in totality, we've now got an ANC machinery that is humming, beginning to gel, and uh, we're dealing with substantive issues, and that speaks to the first priority that the National Executive Committee during the January 8th statement spoke to. We also got a report on uh, issues that have to do with load shedding, and uh, the NEC was rather encouraged to see that the electricity availability factor is continuing to rise, 
and is hovering around 60%, with the incidence of load shedding having been reduced from around 6 now, stage 6 rather, hovering around stage 3, and great progress uh, in stabilizing the ESCOM system, and uh, various units now coming back to operation, and with more that uh, could see there, which will come back a little earlier than what we had anticipated. So, anything got a sense that uh, we now grapple with issues that have been a real bareback and a real concern to the people of South Africa. And we also dealt with the challenge as, as looming and out there with regards to transmission. Uh, the transmission is under a great deal of challenge and stress and we therefore need to look at a variety of options what we do in relation to, to transmission. Obviously it requires quite a lot of money, it's been suggested that it could require up to 210 billion rand and other states could be 250 billion rand. And uh, with the death that ESCOM is carrying right now, it's going to be a challenge, uh, as well as the assistance that it has got from the fiscus, and uh, with uh, uh, the fiscus uh, being challenged as well in a number of ways in terms of meeting the needs of South Africans. So we have a, a problem there, but the good part is that we all resolve that we've got to find innovative ways of addressing this challenge, and we should not sit by and uh, let it slide for years and years, uh, just as we did with um, the whole issue of generation in the past. So that was discussed and good discussions in that regard. We then got an input on the economy as well, particularly on the cost of living that is continuing to rise and um, what we should start looking at, which we will do so at a government level uh, in terms of uh, uh, what options are there. Uh, could well be options, but uh, that uh, is something that we will need to look at. But then again, we also looked at uh, how we can bolster investment, and we looked at how the reforms uh, are being implemented and what progress is being made and uh, reflected on the fact that, yes, a number of reforms are now underway. The reforms that are absolutely necessary, particularly in our logistics uh, area, for instance, rail and our ports, uh, and how we can pay more attention to that, but more particularly working with the private sector. Uh, and we, the NEC and it uh, knows that uh, at government level we've been uh, collaborating with the private sector on how to address some of these challenges uh, and there's been great cooperation in that regard. Then we looked at the issue of uh, basic services, uh, issue that is of great concern to South Africans, water uh, and sanitation uh, as well as uh, the roads uh, in various parts of our country, the potholes uh, and how best the basic services issues can be addressed, particularly uh, how local government 
can be assisted uh, to address the, look, uh, the basic services issue. One of the issues that I, I did raise is that in the end, with the failures and the weaknesses and the lack of capacity that many of our local uh, governments have, we've got to find a way of giving them support. I reflected rather sadly on the issue of Hamas Graf, for instance, where for the longest time, the National Water Department, the Water and Sanitation Department raised the issue of the waterworks at Roiva, and very little was done uh, in putting uh, the Roival waterworks in order. And up to and including the National Department even taking uh, the local municipality, the metro to court. And as we reflected on that, we realized that national government does need to utilize pieces of legislation that we have to intervene because we cannot leave our people continually to live uh, in squalor without water, without proper sanitation uh, when, uh, the local, when we know that the local government does not have capacity, it does not have a way with all and we now need to intervene and uh, we now have a way, one, to engage local governments and uh, find a way of cooperating with them and uh, also to intervene more at the national government level which is precisely what we are now going to start focusing attention on rather than just to leave everything to the wiles of the local government uh, in other situations, of course, there is a challenge of uh, money, the budget, but in others, it's a capacity issue, uh, it's a capability issue where we now need to find ways of intervening directly. That was broadly supported. Um, we also reflected on what happened in one of our invisos when the premier of KZN uh, actually made the call that we now need national governments to make more direct interventions uh, to, to address all these challenges because much as we expect local governments to execute some of their given uh, functions in terms of their areas of competence, they face challenges. They don't have the engineers that um, uh, are needed. They don't have the capability, the staff and the skills that they need to have and therefore the district development model and intergovernmental cooperation needs to be heightened so that we cooperate much more and ensure that <coughs> services are provided to our people. We dealt of course with the issue of uh, uh, crime, corruption and uh, what uh, was raised more Prominently was uh, the state of criminality that is happening in a number of places in our country and uh, how we want the police to make a more stronger intervention. But we also said that the community policing forum needs to be strengthened, needs to be empowered so that they are able uh, to lessen the incidence of criminality. But without uh, saying that the police themselves should not 
executes their work and we should also deal with the challenge of the Zamazama, particularly the illegal mining and that was raised much strongly and uh, we are going to be uh, focusing uh, on that and addressing it uh, quite prominently. Then we also dealt with the issue of uh, a better Africa and a better world. And I, I gave a report on the African leaders' mission uh, to Ukraine and Russia and uh, gave them uh, the 10 issues that we raised with uh, the two leaders, President Zelensky and President Putin and uh, informed them that uh, our visit was well received. They listened because we set out the 10 issues and the first one was that you know, we wanted them to listen uh, not only to each other but also listen to our own African perspective and our own African experience, not that our continent is not dogged by conflicts, but that many of the conflicts that we, we've had, and even those that we have now, the only solution and the best solution is negotiation, and we put that across to them, that we call calling for peace, that we would like to see peace because the lack of peace in that part of the world is having a negative impact on us. Uh, we see it in the rise of uh, uh, food prices, uh, shortage of grains, shortage of fertilizers. Fertilizers prices have shot through the roof and we get most of that from that part of the world. And uh, we also said, thirdly, uh, as African nations, the seven of us, we uh, want to reiterate uh, the principle that uh, every country's territorial integrity should be respected and uh, in terms of the UN uh, Charter and uh, we then said that we want to see de-escalation of the conflict uh, so that uh, people uh, the, the two countries, the leaders begin to talk and then we spoke about the confidence building measures which encompass quite a number of points that are, are practical in terms of what they can do. We also reflected on BRICS and said that um, the BRICS summit is going ahead and we're finalizing our discussions on the format and how it will be held and that I'm in the course of talking to all the various uh, four heads of state in relation to that and that uh, an announcement will be made in due course. So, the NEC has been proceeding very well and uh, in the last hour or two we are now going to reflect on uh, how well we have implemented our past manifesto as tomorrow we begin to reflect on drafting a new manifesto for the forthcoming elections. There's been a very good spirit, a very good mood, and very good cooperation in the NEC and uh, this also will end up being one of the really better NEC meetings that we have held. So it's been going very smoothly, it's got a lot of meat, a lot of substance, and a lot of real good content uh, in our discussion. And I'm just sorry that as uh, media, uh, you are not able to participate because <laughs> you would have seen the real girl. 
of uh, the way uh, we have our discussions. Uh, and maybe next time I will go to the SG to see whether you know you, you can be invited uh, to sit in. Uh, but the SG is very very uh, systematic. Uh, you may not agree uh, to my proposal. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable uh, President. I am going to start to this side. I will suggest that we try and not ask several questions at a time because we're trying to make it conversational. And I don't even have paper and pen, so I won't be able to write. So yes, one is. So the, that's, that's my request. And then the President will then respond to legislative panicker. We'll let us go to Hanika's question. Not in a, in a, in a responding manner. I mean, then we'll be, what do you think? Sure. You know, conversation. So, over to you, Hanika, and then after that, I'll go to, to Mr. Mulligan. Thank you. Can I have the mic? No, I can't. You can use the same mic. No, 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 in my culture, that's uh, not acceptable. <laughs> um, thank you for this opportunity and thank you for the, for the ANC uh, for um, uh, arranging such. Really appreciate it. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in the conversation going towards elections, and obviously, coalition has been the, the flag word. And this week, we saw um, you know, conversation or word around. Um, something happening in a local government sphere, which is in Ikululeni, where an NC leader, you know, basically expressed that an arrangement the ANC has with the EFF is not yielding any positive outcomes there. And there's so much of instability we've seen through this um, uh, 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 manager convenience the ANC has with the EFF and seating in different municipalities and commissions. So, if you could just talk a little bit about you know, the complexity of the ANC in the instability we see in, in local government, and then how do you how do you fix that, and how do you sell an alternative narrative to citizens when a lot of the problems that we see is is kind of you know you can point directly to the instability that has come about because of the swapping in, uh, of 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 government uh, there, and then. Uh, if I could just take the opportunity one time uh, to just brief announcement on whether President Putin is going to be here, is that the announcement that we're going to get this week? Thank you very much. Well, we are, all, we are concerned about instability, particularly local government, uh, of coalition arrangements that have been crafted all around that led to uh, a lapse in service delivery because parties have been more jostling for positions and uh, in some cases promoting their own interests and this in a number of places it ha is happening at the expense of service delivery and uh, um, serving our people well. So it is concerning and uh, of course this is uh, a result of what uh, citizens of our various uh, cities and metros decided and they voted. So this is now what we have now. Coalitions are always difficult to manage and we've come to learn from those countries 
particularly the Northern Hemisphere that have been managing coalitions for a long time. In other cases, they struggle to form governments for periods of up to a year uh, because they, they, they struggle to find commonality and consensus on interests and how people should be positioned. And in one case, I was told that the coalition agreement ran up to 500 pages uh, because they had to look at every little aspect. Now, our coalition arrangements have not yet reached that level, and uh, sometimes they are strategic, sometimes they are tactical, and sometimes they are interest-driven. And we do need to mature to a point where uh, if the citizens have decided in whatever way uh, to support various parties who are able to settle down and form government structures that will function and that will, one, give certainty and confidence to our people, but also that will result in better services being delivered. And that is the reason why we are going to be looking at uh, the a legislative uh, framework that should govern a coalition uh, whether one should whether parties should reach a particular threshold before uh, they are able to participate uh, in, in, in the government uh, process. So we're still taking baby steps uh, in the formation of coalitions and it's found that we're going to make mistakes. And uh, the unfortunate part is when mistakes are made that have a negative impact on our people and I am just hoping and hoping that we can all work to a point where uh, we don't craft coalitions at the expense of the interests of the people. Uh, service delivery must continue, it must not be weakened as we put together these coalitions. The issue of uh, making an announcement at a later stage about BRICS is not really revolve, going to revolve around that. It's just going to give information to South Africans about the importance of BRICS and what it is going to mean, uh, not only to our own country in terms of uh, promoting our interests, but also to the continent, because we are putting this BRICS summit more around uh, BRICS being used as a lever and an instrument to advance the development of our continent. So we will be giving more information about that and, uh, and also hoping and wishing uh, that uh, we have a very successful BRICS summit uh, when it finally happens. When we will have so many countries uh, visiting our country uh, to attend the BRICS summit. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I do apologize for the rolling mics are following so that we can address the situation tomorrow. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Um, I think all have good questions. And just um, uh, two questions. Uh, the one is on law enforcement. Uh, you actually touched on the question I was going to ask about uh, illegal mining. But uh, it obviously is predicated uh, on the criminality and how we are 
uh, enforcing the laws of the country. You know, we, we, we're having something called construction mafia, we're having something called Zamazama, illegal mining, we, and the NEC, as you have said, has reflected on those things. The question I think South Africans will want to know, other than you as the government the reflecting and speaking about them, what is it that you are doing practically to make sure that uh, you can't have a school that was started in 2020 and still not finished because some people just want a share? You, 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 we're speaking about the Zamazamas now, uh, just uh, about five kilometers from where we are, where people were, I mean, they, they, they had to inhale that gas, whatever it is, and then they died. And let's not forget what happened in Kokasov. So what is it that you are doing as a government party, as government? Because speaking about it just really is not cutting the good South Africans. I think they want to see something practically happening. Let's quickly on this. I know my colleague did ask. I'm getting a sense that we may be moving towards a virtual bricks. Uh, is my characterization correct? <laughs> <laughs> On the issue of criminality and the Dhamma Dhamma, uh, absolutely right to be raising uh, these issues, and they have been ventilated a lot also uh, in the NEC and indeed uh, in society as a whole. And we have been with the police and other security forces for intelligence and all that in working on how we are uh, beginning to deal with this problem and this challenge. Now, they are different, uh, these uh, problems, and of course there's, there's uh, the construction mafia uh, that uh, proliferates in many parts of the country and some do it on the quiet, they approach contractors and say we want 30%, we demand it and you can buy us out. Uh, they've become as brazen as all that and it happens on the quiet and some people speak out and sometimes they just storm the construction site and there are many construction sites uh, around the country. And uh, we, 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 we've are working on this and there's a team in the police that is focusing more and more on uh, these, uh, this organized crime. Uh, organized crime that manifests itself uh, through pouncing on construction sites and building sites. And the illegal mining process, uh, I have said that it's not only a policing process but I want all the departments that are involved with the labor, with the with minerals and energy to also get involved so that we approach it as a joint program or process from government side. And uh, we, we will be seeing change uh, sooner rather than later because we've got to address this and the spots are known and of course you cite the very most unfortunate uh, incident that happened uh, here in in Kuruleni, but there was another one in the Free State where 31 miners are said to have died underground. And this could even be more. Uh, so these challenges proliferate 
we are addressing them and we will come down very hard on those who are involved in criminality and uh, the, the mind of the law and the state uh, will be felt because uh, it goes against what we stand for, uh, law and order, and this is a challenge that we've got to address very, very, very firmly. Uh, we're not going to have a virtual big summit. Uh, we're going to have a uh, physical uh, big summit, and uh, all of us uh, are committed to having a summit uh, where we will be able to eyeball each other. We have not held a physical summit for quite a long time, almost three years now, and uh, so sorry to disappoint you, it's not going to be virtual. Thank you very much, but I think the other So um, I am looking for people who are going to lose the mic. In the meantime, I'm going to do it. Thanks, Ms. Mahengi. Um, after you, Mr. President, thanks for this engagement. It's the Honorable from Western Africa. Um, you've been on a renewal process for quite some time now. You've just remarked about how your ABC is united, you're sort of coalescing around issues and pretty much moving in the same direction. But Mr. President, we continue to see <laughs> reports about um, fractures here and there. I mean, my colleague Kotato Madisha released a report today about you. First, they want to know will you be disciplining your chair, Gwede Mandashe? Kotato. Over the signing of an MOU, I know that you, this, is, this is about ANC issues, but this speaks to um, you know cohesion. But also, as a part of your renewal process, it was about dealing um, in the main with your deployees to governments and issues of state capture. Are you concerned about the type of people that your deputy president is surrounding himself with? If reports are anything to go by, um, some of whom have been implicated in issues of um, state capture. But on top of that. Uh, someone who is deemed as a close ally of yours, Mr. Bejan Echolke, this week releasing a statement talking about fake WhatsApps going around, that he's part of a plot to undermine the office of the Deputy President. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And just, I am really uh, going pushing it up this is my family, but your reaction to the outcomes of the Palapala report. <laughs> Thank you. I still want to request um, that hopefully I am audible, um, but I still want to request that we keep it to one session at a time, uh, so so that the president can agree to come back again. So just one question so that he has a chance to apply himself to that specific one and then we'll continue to do it that way, if that's okay. Thanks very much. I see if it has a <laughs> I now know what <laughs> No, on the last point, I've noted the TP's report and that's it, just as far as uh, I've noted it, so that, that's what it is. Um, unity is a process. 
we are not where we would like to be, but we are on the way to being a united organization. Uh, the divisions that have dogged us in the past are busy melting away as we embrace the new world, as we embrace uh, unity, and as we embrace the rebuilding of the ANC and uh, improving our brand and dealing as openly as possible with the problems and the challenges that have beset our organization in the past. So unity and renewal should never be seen as a one-day event. There will be ups and downs. There will be uh, forward movement and reversals. Uh, but we are moving forward. Uh, the forward movement on the way to United ANC and the renewed ANC as I said uh, at the January 8th statement, it's irreversible and irrevocable. We are moving forward and embracing one another in a much more effective way uh, in the way that we deal with issues and the way that we deal with each other. And of course, uh, you refer to the issues of uh, the deployees uh, and Kutato uh, uh, chose to, to write about uh, what he perceived are disjunctures. Uh, let, let me say, we are making a mountain out of a molehill really here. Uh, it's been suggested that when Minister Mantashe was not at the signing of the uh, agreement, MOU rather, uh, with, uh, when the Dutch Prime Minister and the Danish Prime Minister were here, uh, it was a big snub and a big deal. It wasn't. And uh, things were moving very quickly, and uh, people in his department and uh, other departments in the presidency were moving very quickly. And uh, as he has said, he, he hasn't really read the agreement. But the agreement, the MOU, was signed by government. Uh, so government has signed that and that is the best commitment that we want. It is the government of the Republic of South Africa that uh, signed these issues and uh, agreements don't always have to be signed by you know, specific people. We delegate a number of other people to sign those and then it is said that there the, the, the is a rupture as you said, uh, between uh, those who are deployed on policy matters. And I should tell you that Minister Mantashe is the one minister who has signed more renewable um, IPPs than any other. He has signed them by the bucket load, uh, signifying his commitment to government policy, because government policy on renewables uh, continues and uh, people are deployed uh, to uh, further that, uh, that, that policy. So there's no issue. The issue that you raise about uh, the Deputy President and the people that relate to, he has answered and uh, he will be able to answer that as well. Uh, some of the people are not known to me, uh, but uh, I'm sure you are able to have that type of conversation with him. And uh, I have not had any uh, inkling whatsoever that uh, there's uh, 
any form of criminality or whatever. So uh, you you should you should ask him that. Uh, you 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 refer to uh, the Johnny Chow case WhatsApp. There's been quite a usage of um, abuse rather of WhatsApp numbers. But mine was also uh, utilized improperly. Uh, and I think we did issue a statement to that effect. Because all of a sudden I found that my WhatsApp number and my photograph was being used to solicit money from a number of people. And, uh, and uh, one of the people who was my friend called me and said, I just received this message from you. And I said, what message? He said, but in the message I'm supposed to do A, B, C, D, about money and I said but I never sent you that message then we realized that my number was being abused uh, and uh, uh, we are in the process of looking at all that so this social media stuff and all that it's utilized in various uh, nefarious ways and that is precisely what uh, I also went through thank you thank you president um, Following this order, um, oh, you're like, no, thank you. 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 Thank and then we'll just do this and do this so that we afford it for the chance. Okay. I'll just very, very quickly before I ask my question. Can I just say we wouldn't ask a flurry of questions if we had this engagement regularly as a comment by the president himself. So the issue becomes that and when you blackmail us and say, my last car won't have another one, ask one or not have another one, that's unfair. I just want to put that out there to you, it's nothing. That's unfair. It's 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 not unfair. 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 It's not engaging in regularly, you must be able to just really report. What is your sense of what's happening? Secondly, um, I only just asked you, I'll hold the others. Um, from, a, from a president of Mbeki, I was speaking to him about a month ago, and I said, you know, you came out campaigning for the ANC recently. Will you be campaigning again in 2024? He said, it's a legitimate question that he cannot answer, because there are many things that are going wrong that are not being attended to as well as they should be. That feels like an indictment on this leadership of the ANC. Your reaction to that, please? Well, I also saw the report of the city press, and I had a discussion with the deputy president, and, um, and uh, I said, but what is this? And we are going to have another discussion because, and I immediately said to him, I appointed you, and uh, I'm the only person <laughs> who can uh, be appoint you, and uh, there is just no thought, no plan, no inkling whatsoever that something like that uh, could be in the works. And uh, I would have, you know, to have my own head examined, to have had 
uh, deputy president appointed and thereafter, because I'm the only one who could remove him uh, unless the party decides so, uh, and, and then to do that. So there is no truth or substance uh, to, to that at all, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, the issue of uh, former President Tabo um, uh being asked whether he will campaign, and I think I mean, there are a number of issues that uh, we uh, have been in conversation with him on, and we will continue to, to do that, uh, and uh, he's a revered and respected leader of our organization, and matters that uh, uh, have to be discussed will be discussed, and of course, we, we would like you know, as many of our leaders as possible uh, to participate in the forthcoming uh, elections and uh, we, we will be campaigning very hard uh, and hopefully with as many leaders as possible. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, President, right. I have no time to look at Thank you, ma'am. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Uh, look at Salata from Eastern Africa. Mr. President, um, I completely concur with my colleague around the issue of access uh, to you, uh, and I think uh, to a large extent um, your, your cabinet as well and, and your government ministers. I think it, it sometimes becomes very hard for us to be able to tell the real story to South Africans just simply because we, we don't have access. Yeah. Or by the time that, you know, we we are able to get through is two to three days after the fact and we then miss that opportunity for us to be able to do our job which is largely to uh, to inform South Africans so we would appreciate going forward Mr. President that you know that, that this becomes a much more regular engagement and that we are able to have access to you on a much more regular basis now just to my uh, the, the issue around my question you raised the issue of transmission uh, of ESCOM and obviously, hopefully, lessons having been learned from the generation uh, side. So now the transmission is going to cost a lot of money, uh, around 250 billion. There's the issue of rails and ports, amongst ground. The real issue, uh, and then you also mentioned something about capacity uh, as opposed to capability. That's going to be very worried because those are two different things. Hopefully, on another occasion, we'll be able to engage properly because if we don't have capacity, we can hire the people. But if the people that get hired don't have the capability, then we've got a serious problem. But the issue, Mr. President, that I want to raise is just how much, uh, how seriously is the ANC taking the issue of accountability within, particularly those uh, within government? Because the issue of Amman's crown, uh, there were many warnings. Um, that were issued about that situation, but still it was allowed to happen and people died. So in terms of accountability, we need to be able to hold you a lot more accountable, so that's why I'm asking for a lot more regular engagements with you and the government, but also the ANC itself. What is it doing around the issue of accountability? Um, uh, I, and are we going to start seeing a lot more um, people being held accountable because corruption would, if I'm afraid of being held accountable I'm not going to get into corrupt acts 
uh, basically. So just around the issue of transmission and the issue of accountability. I'm sorry for being long-winded. Thank you. Quite long-winded. Maybe the first one, yes, uh, the issue of access. Uh, we will uh, gear up uh, the accessibility uh, so that you are able to report to South Africans uh, about what we are doing in government and uh, also it speaks to the accountability aspect that it is through that that we are able to be accountable so uh, full agreement on, on that aspect on the transmission issue and as I said we need to come up with uh, a number of innovative ways it's, it's a big ticket item to improve the transmission uh, of, of the grid, uh, to improve yes, the, the grid that is transmission. So we, we are going to have to come up with innovative ideas. And some of them uh, would be partnering with, with, uh, with the private sector, uh, where the money resides, and uh, finding ways of uh, doing so uh, and without um, the diluting, uh, minimizing the, the ownership of the grid by the people of South Africa because the grid event, uh, essentially belongs to the people of South Africa uh, as managed by, by, by the state. Uh, so other countries have been able to uh, do quite a lot of innovative things when it comes to improving their own transmission and grid. And by the way, uh, many other countries around the world are also facing exactly the same problem. We focus attention on, on, the, on, on the generation side and now we have to face attention, uh, place attention on the, on the grids or the transmission. So a number of options then have to be explored and uh, we're raising it so that we, we should not be alarmed at uh, what we need to do. It's, it's an enormous ask, uh, but uh, it's something that has to be done. Uh, much, possibly much more serious than uh, the generation part itself, because it's going to cost so much more money, but we've got to find innovative ways of uh, dealing with that, and it's got to be done almost immediately. Uh, ESCOM has already said as much. On the issue of accountability of people who are deployed, uh, you're absolutely right, we need to uh, improve uh, accountability. You're absolutely right when it comes to capacity, yes, we've got to increase the capacity, and it revolves around skills, it revolves around making sure that people have the know-how, uh, but uh, capability uh, is, as you say, a different matter. And when it comes, for instance, to the Hammond's graph, the matter was raised on a number of occasions uh, with uh, the Metro, and not much was done. And that becomes a political problem, which needs to be addressed and that's where accountability uh, has to be put in place and for us as we move forward we've got to have the right people in the right, doing the right jobs 
uh, and also through professionalization of the civil service and improving our accountability processes, uh, we should be able to ensure that things get done a lot better. Uh, it's been the case in the civil service that yes, even as people have not been able to perform their tasks, uh, nothing much flows, nothing much happens, uh, not leaving out on, at the political level. So we've got a number of areas that we need to pay attention to and uh, we are going to do so because the realization that it militates against the interests of our people has become patently clear. I know that it wasn't clear in the past, but it's something that we've got to address. And we will. Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, media engagement uh, by the Republic of South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa. And uh, that's going to conclude our program uh, for uh, today. Uh, you've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Uh, today is Saturday, uh, July the 16th, July 15th, uh, 2023, and uh, we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal if you'd like to read the pan-african news why just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com we're going to close out with the music of hank mobley and his quintet along with cedar walton from the album entitled breakthrough this is abayomi azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week
Thank you. 